Again, um, so I want us to say Thanksgiving's coming up, right? That's not catch anybody by surprise. You've made plans, hopefully. Um, but I wanted us to think for a second. What's the foundation of our gratitude? All right. So, so when you think deep down beneath everything else, what what is your gratitude built on top of? All right, because we find that it's there's times in life where it's really easy to be thankful. The job's going well. Family's, you know, relatively stable. No major problems within it. Uh, health is good. There's just times where God graciously gives us seasons where it's easier to be grateful than other times, right? But what about the times when it's not easier? Because, you know, God says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so there's got to be something for us to be grateful for that is deeper and more lasting and more stable than our circumstances. Right? Because if you live in a fallen world and, and you do, and you might say, well, I don't believe that. Like everything, people are good. Now, well, you live in a fallen world and that fallen world is going to splash up against you and it is going to come crashing through your doors no matter how well prepared you are for it, no matter how good a degree you have for it, no matter how many vitamins and supplements you take, there's going to be times where the fall crashes in your door. And in those moments where things are falling down, in those moments where the things you love desperately are shaken, is there something that can still hold? Is there a foundation that's better, that's deeper, that's stronger than that? And is there a foundation that in the good things, when the table is full, when everything is right, is there is there something that enhances thanksgiving? Is there something that makes thanksgiving richer and better in those moments? I'm going to say yes. We've spent the month of November focusing on being thankful for the majesty of God. We've been pointing over and over again, here's who God is, here's what he's like, and we're in Isaiah chapter 40, and Isaiah chapter 40 is this message of comfort my people. Like, comfort them. Comfort them because I've promised them that there's an exile coming. I've promised them that, that the darkest circumstances in the history of their nation and in their lives is coming. I've promised that. And so I want them to have a message of comfort that will hold even in exile, that will hold even in the most tragic circumstances that they have ever faced and that even their nation has ever faced. I want to give them something that will comfort them beyond that. And so comfort my people. What is the comfort? That every eye will see the glory of the Lord. And for some it will eternally crush them. And for some it will eternally rescue them. But every eye will gaze upon the glory of the Lord. Comfort them with that. Comfort them with this simple message. Behold your God. Stare at your God. Help them to see God. Help them to gaze on him. Help them to see a deeper staring, gazing look at God. And so that's what we've done. This is the third week of it. And so we've seen his greatness, his arm, his sovereign arm rules over all. It rules over the nations. It, it rules over creation. It rules over all. We've seen that those sovereign arms are also shepherding arms where he gathers up the weak among his flock and he pulls them close to his chest and he walks with them. We've seen those the shepherding arm lead his people out, feed his people, tend to his people, care for his people. We've seen a wisdom that is unsearchable. Like, if you can't grasp the biggest things in creation, how could you possibly grasp the mind of the Creator Himself? And so we've beheld our God, and then we've also seen 
the power of God. Like the nations are a drop in the bucket. The nations with their massive armies, a hundred million strong and their massive nuclear arsenals, they can wipe out a good chunk of the earth. And to God, it's a drop in the bucket. Behold your God. And then we'll be doing the last part of Isaiah 40 today. Uh, these big and heady, almost repetitive ways, God is great, God is great, God is great, God is great, are going to turn now and become intensely more personal as we walk out the closing of, of Isaiah chapter 40 because it's almost like Isaiah 40 has been a resume of God's ability to fulfill his good purposes in the lives of his people. It's like a, a resume of God's ability to sustain you until he comes back to fulfill his promises. It's a resume of God saying, I have the ability to care for you, to sustain you, to not let you falter until my promises, until my deliverance, until my salvation now or uh, eternal comes that he'll hold. And so let's listen. Isaiah 40, 18 through 31 as we wrap up this this chapter. Uh, In verse 18, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for, it casts for it in silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. And he blows on them. And they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by numbers, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, or speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases in strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Father, I pray that as we see you on the pages of Scripture, that you would let the eyes of our hearts see you with a greater clarity. See you with a majesty that holds when life shakes, that holds when suffering lands at our door, we would see a, a majesty and a beauty that is a greater beauty. We would see a glory that is a greater glory. We would see a hope that is a greater hope. And we would believe. We would believe you will hold us. We would believe you would never leave us or forsake us in those moments. We would believe that your shepherding care will walk right beside us.
And Father, I pray that you would confront our feelings with truth, our circumstances with yourself. Father, our functional beliefs that are not true would melt as we see you. And so, Father, do more than my words could ever do. Do more than my thoughts or my mind or my standing here could ever do. And do it for the sake of your people. Because one day we will gaze on your glory. And then we will be made like your son. Because we will see him perfectly as he is. So, Father, we pray do this and more in Jesus' name. Amen. So, God's majestic glory will be seen by all. God's majestic glory will be seen by all. Behold the majesty of God's incomparable and incomprehensible Godness. I didn't miss an O. Some of y'all have already read ahead. I meant to say Godness, not goodness. Behold the majesty of God's incomparable and incomprehensible Godness. So as we look back over, over history, and really if we look at a huge chunk of the globe over in the east, you have got people who make for themselves idols and they worship them. Right? So they've got gold statues that look like people, kind of, not exactly. They've got gold statues that look like people with animal faces all around. They've got animal statues. They've got a wide, just infinite variety of, look, this is your God. They have idols, and so they set up these statues on their mantles. Uh, My favorite restaurant growing up was Golden Buddha. Had the big, large, I don't know if I'm supposed to say the F word. They had this big, large Buddha with a big smiling face and the belly, and you're supposed to rub the belly for luck, right? And like they believe that stuff. Name the restaurant after it and everything, right? And so they set up idols to worship. And these idols would be set all over their towns and all over their, their their villages still to this day. And they would bring flowers, they would bring food, they would bring valuables. And they'll just set it right in front of this statue. Because this statue, this God can give them prosperity. This God can give them well-being. This God can give them health. This God can give them the good life. Whatever it is they're seeking. And so they're making offerings. And if I can just make this statue happy, then things are going to go right. And you think, man, that is crazy. Do you think that, right? Okay. If not, that is crazy. You should think that. How crazy is that? And then we start looking in the mirror. And our idols aren't made of gold sitting on a mantle. Our idols are the things we stare at in the mirror. And we look at ourselves and I will be comforted. I will have comfort. I will be served The world will revolve around me. My law will be the law of my family or of my friends or of my job and I will be served. You think, how insane is that? Or it won't be me, it'll be another person. And if I could just, life would be good if I could just have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Life will be good if I get a spouse. Life will be good if I get another spouse. Or if I could just trade this one in, right? And life will always be better If this person is happy, if this person loves me, if this person shows up. Man, that's insane, isn't it? And yet we worship ourselves and would have others do the same. Or we worship others. Or we don't just worship ourselves and others. Sometimes we worship stuff. How crazy is it that we have these little green things with the president's face on it and we bow our lives down to worship it? I would love to be able to say, man, those people are so crazy bowing down to Golden Buddha. 
Until I start looking in the mirror and say, what do I bow down to? What am I looking to outside of God for security? What am I looking to outside of God for hope? What am I looking to outside of God that I fear? And I, I, I operate in fear around this thing. What am I looking to outside of God to say, this is the good life? And then I look at myself and say, Chris, you're crazy. Have you seen the picture of God? Have you seen the one that flung out the heavens? Have you seen the one whose sovereign arm rules for him? Have you seen the one that would shepherd you and pick your idolatrous, sorry self up, bring him you to his test, and then walk with you when you're too weak to walk yourselves? Why? Why? And so we are prone to stray. We're prone to wonder, as the song, sa- song says. Idolatry is insanity, though. And the more you read Isaiah 40, and the more you read his word, the more you realize God is better. God is a better glory, and God is a better beauty, and God is a better majesty, and God is a better God than the things we're looking to for comfort, for, for peace, for hope, for, for fear, for love. Let's look at it in the text as he continues on. So to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? Who, who or what will you come set beside God or set in front of God and say, look, these two things are pretty close. And so God says, well, let's take the things you are putting in front of me. Let's take the things you are looking to instead of me for your security and for your comfort and for your hope. Let's put them beside him. So an idol, that's the one we'll take. This idol you stick on your mantle or this idol you look in the mirror at. Let's see about that. Is that what you can compare me to? And then I want you to see the links that Isaiah goes to to show this man-making God is being compared to a man-made idol. Every phase of the idol's existence happens because a little speck of a dust called a human that happens to be able to work with gold or silver or wood, that little speck of a human is making it. And so these gods that you're comparing God to are made by a speck of dust called man. Right? You see the absurdity of that, right? You're meant to at least. A craftsman casts it. Well, what is a, what is a craftsman? Well, if you were to look, if you were to look up like all the amassed nations of man are a drop in the bucket. So if you could shave a drop down into like a one billionth of a piece, that craftsman billionth of a piece casts this idol. And then another guy comes along that's a goldsmith and this goldsmith uh, overlays it with gold. And then this goldsmith makes these chains. You see that? Like a person makes it, a person makes it, a person makes it, a person makes it. And then poof, at the end, God Are you going to compare that to God? Are you going to compare that to the one who measures out the heavens and weighs the mountains in a a balance scale? You see the absurdity, right? The man-making God is being replaced by man-made idols. But but let's say you don't have enough money for a good golden statue, a good golden Buddha to sit on your mantle. What are you going to do then? Well, scrape up enough money to, to get some wood and a wood carver. Right? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And then he seeks a skillful craftsman. And in another place in Isaiah, he's like this. Okay, so you cut down a tree. And you cut that tree in half. And half goes over here to firewood. And the other half, poof, it's a god because we carved some face on it. It's absurd. And it is absurd when you latch your hopes, your dreams, your well-being to a man made by God. Because they can sing. Because they can act. Because they can play sports. 
because they're right here and seem like they have so much power in front of you. And it's insane when you look in the mirror and think, that deserves to be worshipped. And he's illustrating the absurdity of idolatry. Do you not know? Here's the answer. Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And so there are truths as old as time. There are truths shouted by creation. And there are truths that have been declared in the book that God has written from the foundation of the earth that everybody knows. What are these truths that counteract that? He sits above the circle of the earth. What it's pointing to is, you know, kings would make big thrones and like, you know, to to represent their exalted status. And so they'd make these big thrones and bigger thrones. And so what he's saying here is he, God, sits above the circle of earth. He, God, has a throne that rises up so high that the entire globe sits underneath his rule. That the entire circle of the planet sits underneath his rule. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. His throne is that high. It is so high that when he looks down on the inhabitants of the earth, it's like grasshoppers. That's how exalted God is. He looks down and the earth is like a little circle. When he looks down, he sees people and they're like grasshoppers. That's God who, you look at the heavens that he rules and it's like this, he threw some some tent posts out and then threw a curtain over these tent posts and that's the heavens. That's the trillions and trillions and trillions of miles of heavens with hundred billion stars in it. Oh, threw up a few tent poles. Cast it like a curtain, a little tent that he, that he set up for it to sit in. He sits above it all. About everybody's been in a plane, right? Most of you. So you start taking off out of Atlanta. I do. Y'all may go somewhere else. So start taking off out of Atlanta and you get a, you know, you get a decent ways up and on a clear day you look down and like these massive Atlanta homes with little swimming pools. They look like one of those little model houses, right? On a, on a board that's in your basement. Like a little model house, a little blue dot, that's a swimming pool. Right? And so the higher you get, like these massive things that could hold a huge family. Huh, look, neat little model there. But then you keep going up and, you know, we usually arrive in, in Lima late at night. Or in, while it's dark. And if it's a clear night, you know, even at cruising altitude, you look down and you see these little specks of dot. Everything's vast and everything's dark and there's nothing and there's these little specks of light. You know what those little specks of light are? Towns with tens of thousands of human beings in them or hundreds of thousands of human beings in them. And what does it look like? Little speck of light. God's throne is so high, so exalted, pointing to such high glory and such high beauty and such high majesty and reigning above everything that when he looks down and sees the mass of humanity, little speck of light, or in the text, grasshoppers. Behold your God. Stretches out the curtain like a canopy. What we cannot fathom the, in, the, the depths of to him is like a little tent, Right? And then what about these rulers? What about all these great people of the earth, right? You think of Nebuchadnezzar, big empire, pretty terrible guy. You think of Alexander the Great. Like, I don't don't know these people. You just hear them in history, right? And so you've got Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler. You've got people that have wreaked havoc on the earth, ruled large sections of the earth, terrorized millions and millions of people. What about to God, though? These great ones. They're rulers. They're powerful. But what about to God? 
onto the pages of history you go. And what is great to us, what is terrifying to us, what is mighty to us, is blown onto the pages of history like so much dust. Behold your God, because they are in the grave rotting, and God is still reigning above the heavens, sitting above the circle of the earth. That's what happens to the people that terrorize. That's what happens to the great people. And so what place do we have left for fear? Like, what place does it leave us for pride? Man, Chris is doing pretty great. The greatest leaders in history get like a a chapter in a a history book that you sleep through. Right? Some of y'all are history people. I'm sorry to offend you, but most everybody else sleeps through that stuff. You and I aren't going to be a footnote in a history book. Where's our pride go then? Where's the arrogance that we think we're something? Right? There's no place for it. The greatest people in history don't get a, get a dot. And we get nothing. Even that. Know what that frees you up to do? It frees you up to make much of God. It frees you up to live in His story like He's the lead part and you're a bit character. It frees you up to make every action you have point to Him as the star, not you. Right? And so I get to live the way I was designed. I get to live so that He's glorious and He's seen and He's known and He's great because He is instead of me trying to make a little place for myself that is going to be like dust that God blows off the scales and like a little storm comes by and it just blows the stubble that was left behind away. The greatest rulers in history are blown into the dust of history. And so why? But I can wrap my life up in an eternal story that points to an eternally great God. And by the way, that's what you were designed for. That's what your life is made for. Behold your God. And then he begins to personalize it. And we begin to get name after name of God after name of God flowing from here. And so let's go on uh, as he starts to take all these big concepts, layers after layers of big concepts. And he starts to bring them down to us. So here we go. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So let's, let's break that down. He asked the same question again, right? What are you going to compare me to? And... Maybe some of y'all grew up, well, I don't know, like everybody's in the digital age now. It used to be when you took a long car ride, you had to play games. So like you played the ABC game, like you'd had to find a sign or a license plate with every letter of the alphabet to win, or you'd play 20 questions. And the goal of 20 questions, for those, you know, that's probably not on your phone, the goal is like somebody's thinking of an object, and you have 20 questions to find out what it is. Right, and so you'd always start with, you know, is it animal or, or, or what, or vegetable or mineral? I don't know, something like that. But then the next question, you're always trying to determine size. So like, bigger than a bread basket. Like, I don't even know what a bread basket is. Bigger than a toaster. Well, we don't do toasters either, but that's how it started back in the day when you're driving in a car and you're bored to death and your parents don't want you to fight anymore, so like, go, go play a game, okay? So, 20 questions. Toaster, how big is it? Is it bigger? Let me get a rough range of size. There's no way to play that game with God. There's no way to determine the size based in comparison to anything on earth. Okay, okay, maybe the globe. We got this world thing. The world's really big. Hmm, no, no. You can't, can't really judge the size of God by that. He kind of just 
spoke and it happened. Okay, but the universe, man, it's huge. I can't figure out the end of the universe. There's space and everything. Mm, no, no, you, mm, that really, you, you can't really get the size of God based on that. He really, he just spoke and it flung it out. There's no way to play a comparison game to God to try to get to what he's like. And so the Bible has dozens of analogies like, oh man, he's father. He's a warrior. He's a rock. He's a refuge. And all of those are, man, they're great. But not one of them can contain who God is. That's why there has to be a scripture littered with over and over, analogy after analogy. Try to get a little picture of who God is and that still doesn't do him justice. You can't compare him to anything. And then we get the name of uh, one of the names of God. That's a perfect name in light of this. Who will you compare me to? What am I like? Says the Holy One. Well, holy has two primary shades of meaning. Meaning number one, though, is distinct in a category by itself, otherness. So the otherness of God, the different God, the category by himself, God says, what am I like? You get it? Like there's this play here. Like there's a God who is totally alone, totally distinct, totally different, totally by himself. There's no comparison, right? There's nothing we can point to that says it's like him. And then the other shade of meaning that kind of flows from it because it's God is the idea of purity, the idea of perfections. And so different and perfect, utterly perfect and utterly pure. That's God. Who's like that? Who do you know that's like that? Who can you compare that to? Who can you get an idea of what he's like from that? And the answer, of course, is nobody. Because that's the point of the question, isn't it? The point of these questions throughout this section is this. God can't be compared to anything that you're facing, anything that you're fearing, anything that you would say is great. God can't be compared to that. And then the other point of the question is a very personal point of these questions. Hold up your circumstances. Hold up your feelings. Hold up what you are functionally believing in the moment. And then compare it to who God says he is. Compare it to what God is like. Compare it to truth. Because your circumstances don't determine God. God is over your circumstances. Your feelings don't change who God is. And it doesn't change his care for you. And so what you're feeling must be bowed under the greatness of God. So who am I like, says the Holy One. And then look at this. He, he, for the third time, deals with the stars. But I want you to notice how much more personally he deals with them here. Right? And so he measured the stars with a, with a little ruler earlier. He threw the stars out like a curtain a little earlier, but now he shepherds the stars. He brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one is missing. So do you see the difference? Like now there's this picture of God shepherding the stars in a processional every single night. Now this isn't science, this is analogy, right? We're not making scientific statements about God. We're using this picture of God shepherding out the stars. And so night after night, he takes the countless trillions of miles of stars, the hundred billion stars, and he just shepherds them in a processional to cover the earth. Or I mean to cover the, the, to, to cover the universe. And look at the, look at what he says about them. Hundred billion of them or more. I mean, that's just a guess that some smart person came up with, right? A hundred billion of them. He calls them out by name. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. It's an old, old pastor from England. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names 
is in no danger of forgetting his children. And I think that's the point of this verse. If he shepherds glowing gas balls in the sky that are trillions of years away and nobody's ever going to get to them, and if he knows them by name and he shepherds them, is he in any danger of losing his care for you, his special redeemed creature? His adopted child. Is there any chance he kind of forgets you and leaves you behind or doesn't know your name or doesn't know your circumstances? There's not a chance. Right? And so if he knows the stars by name, he certainly knows your name. And he certainly knows your circumstances. So how much more if he knows glowing balls of gas does he know his children? And if he doesn't lose one because of his power, if he doesn't lose one because of the greatness of his might... Is he going to lose one of his children then? Is he going to forget them? Are they going to drop off the radar? Are they going to go through some circumstance where he's like, Man, I'm so sorry I dropped the ball on that one, Chris. So sorry, I, I just kind of forgot to check in on you. And that's the point of these comparisons if he shepherds the stars. Then no matter what you feel like, and no matter how alone you feel or how abandoned you feel, God is not in danger of having forgotten you or forgotten to care for you right where you are. That's how incomparable, nothing to compare him to, and incomprehensible, no way to understand. That's how much it is for God. So behold your God. The second step we're taking today, behold the majesty of God's personal sustaining of his people through suffering. Behold the majesty of God's personal sustaining of his people through suffering. Now, we have all cried out these questions before. Israel's going to do it here. We've done it. If you haven't, you're going to at some point. We've all cried out questions like this. God, can you see me? Right? I'm hurting. God, have you forgotten me? Not that I would blame you because, you know, I, I feel I feel pretty guilty when I suffer because, like, I really have blown it a lot. I can totally see how you would have checked out on me, God. I totally see how you had given up on me. God, have you given up on me? God, have you forgotten me? God, don't you care? Right? We have been in the darkness of circumstances to ask these deeply painful questions from our grief. God, are you still there? God, do you see till, still see me? God, do you care? God, have you forgotten I want to read a psalm for you that um, encourages me, and I hope will encourage you along these same lines. Psalm 139 personalizes this uh, all-knowing God, personalizes this all-powerful God for us to our circumstances. Lord, you have searched me, and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and all the light about me is night, even the darkness is 
not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, the se- in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. We can talk about the greatness of God. And you will never reach a a limit to understanding that with human words. But he's not just great and out there somewhere, winding up the clock of the earth to let it run. He is great and out there while being very present, very near, very concerned with little one out of 7.5 billion people on earth, you. And there's not a day, a word, a thought, a moment, a pain, a trial, a darkness that you will face that he is not intimately aware of and intimately present in the midst of. That's Psalm 139. How precious are your thoughts to me. How vast the sum of them. I wake up and you're there. And you're going to need that one day. You're going to need that because life hurts. And this truth isn't going to make life not hurt. This truth isn't going to make everything easy and make everything work out okay. This truth is going to sustain you. This truth is not going to make the darkness light, but it's going to remind you that darkness isn't dark to God. And that he sees perfectly through the darkness of your circumstances to where you are. That's what it's going to do. It's going to hold you up. And it's going to encourage you to wait faithfully on the Lord for his deliverance now. Or wait faithfully on the Lord for his eternal deliverance and good purposes in your life and in our lives for eternity, forever. Let's look at it in the text. Two questions are asked by Israel that, that, that kind of come off of the beginning, comfort my people. And then two questions are asked by Israel here. But I want you to notice they come at a pivotal point. They come after, here's who God is, here's who God is. It's almost repetitive. God's great, God's great, God's great. Better than the heavens, bigger than the heavens, bigger than the earth, bigger than any people. Bigger, better, greater. Layer after layer because majesty can't be understood. Words can't get at one phrase. And so they have to heave up layer after layer. And at the end of that comes the, the answer to the question of Israel and of yours. You're in the middle of the hardest and worst thing you're ever going to face. How can you be comforted? And so the question is this, or the questions are this. Why Jacob or why Israel do you say, why is my way hidden from the Lord? That is not the question of like evildoers. God doesn't see. I can get away with whatever I want. Like that's not the question being asked. The question being asked right here is this. From the depths of grief and the depths of sorrow. God, have you forgotten me? Right? That's what he's asking is God doesn't see my way. God doesn't see what I'm going through. God doesn't know how much I'm hurting. God doesn't know how bad this is for us. And so the question is, God, have you forgotten mercy? Have you forgotten comfort? Have you missed us? Has you, have you missed something? Are you still there? Have you left? Have you forgotten? 
Right? And so that's the question of the first. It's the, it's the, it's the cry of a grief-filled heart where circumstances look like God is absent. God, have you forgotten my way? God, you don't see my ways. And then the second question is, my, my right has been disregarded by the Lord. And so I'm facing injustice. I'm facing oppression. I'm facing attacks. God, have you forgotten to make wrongs right again? Have you forgotten to come and deliver your people? Have you forgotten to come and, and give justice in the place of injustice? Have you forgotten? And these are the questions that we ask in our pain, some version of them, right? These are the questions when we don't get it, that we ask these things like, God, are you there and do you care? And this is the question being asked in front of him. And so can we ask questions of God? I would say yes and no. Right? And so I, I think the posture of our questions is is the, the main thing that makes our questions uh, right or wrong. It's like, so in the posture of my questions, God, I'm in the middle of grief. I'm in the middle of confusion. I don't get it. God, can you help me understand? God, are you still there? Right? And so I think if you are in a, in a place of grief or a place of humility and you've just got, God, I don't get this. It hurts. I think that's a question that God's big enough to be there for and big enough to answer. Right? But if your questions are an accusation against God, God, I deserved better. God, you've messed up. Then that's when I would say when, I, when our questions cross into that category, they're questions that, yeah, God's big enough, like, you know, that he doesn't lightning bolt. But those are, okay, God, I have walked across the line and I need to be restored to faith. Like, God, I believe. Even when I feel this way, God, I believe this is what's true about you. Right? And so that's what's happening in these questions. And then God answers these questions. But he doesn't answer these questions the way we want him to, does he? He doesn't answer the question saying, everything's going to work out perfectly. He doesn't answer the questions by saying, poof, circumstances are fine. He doesn't answer this question always with saying, immediate deliverance, immediate justice, immediate healing. He doesn't answer the questions with making it, making it work out for us all the time. How does he answer the questions of human pain? He doesn't answer them with why. He does not always answer them with fix it. He answers them first, here's who I am. Who is the answer to the deepest cries of our pain? God. Here's what he's like. Here's how he's better. Here's how he's bigger. And he answers it, who? And so he goes into the text, who? And then the second answer he gives And man, I wish he would give the other answer. But the answer he gives is, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your weariness, when you're ready to give out, I'll give you enough strength to keep going. So his answer isn't, I'll fix it, it's I'll sustain you through it. And that's his answer. Here's who I am, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious, and it's greater than anything you face. And here's my answer, I will be enough for you to walk through this. I will sustain you through this. Let's look at it as he goes on and answers it. Uh, Have you not known and have you not heard? Again, he echoes that same statement. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Three names of God in this sentence. Yahweh. Now, I can't get into a lot of it, but one of the basic meanings of Yahweh, it's the personal name of, of, of God for his covenant people. And so Yahweh, the Lord, haven't you heard Yahweh's on the scene? Haven't you heard that the God who has established relationship with you by his covenant, haven't you heard him? He's the everlasting God. 
He's the God who has no beginning. He's the God who has no end. He's the God who is not running out of energy, wrinkling and wearing out over the ages. Haven't you heard the everlasting God who knows the past, who knows the present, who knows the future? He never learns anything. He never figures anything out. He's never missing a piece of information that would have changed the way he would have handled a situation. The everlasting God who always has been and knows all things, haven't you heard? He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Haven't you heard that he spoke the world world into existence by his words? Haven't you heard that his word has a power to speak life where there is death and something where there is nothing? Haven't you heard the creator of the ends of the earth does not faint or grow weary? A hundred billion stars that he's got to keep up with their names and if some of them flame out. Trillions of miles of space... Birds and animals and reptiles, a whole globe to keep spinning and, and to make sure it's working out the way it's supposed to. And then all these people everywhere, 7.5 billion people, and he's got to keep up with their thoughts and he's got to keep up with their words. He's got to keep up with their the number of days of life they're going to have. I get tired when I've got like three things to do in a day. When my jot list or you know, when my checklist gets to about eight, I'm ready to check out and run out screaming or like curl up in the corner of my office in the fetal position. Like, without being flippant, how many times have you gotten to the place in your life where it's like, I'm done. God, I can't take one more. I can't take one more conversation. I can't take one more frustration. I can't take one more fight. I can't take one more distraction. I can't take one more conversation about this. Right? Have you been there? That's not God. That is not God. He he does not faint He doesn't check out. He doesn't burn out. He's not like, uh, I can't God today. I can't adult today. Right? God never gets to that place. He's never like, I gotta take a vacation. Let's spin this thing into autopilot for a second because I just can't even. You do that though, and I do that. God is never in danger of that. Like, okay, Chris, you're just gonna have to deal with this for a week or two. I got to take a vacation. The creator of the ends of the earth, the everlasting God that never wears out, He doesn't faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. And so sometime in our darkest moments, we have to make declarations that are true. We have to declare, God, you are good, and God, you are great. God, you know what you're doing. God, your purposes for me are good. God, in the end of the encounter, and not in every individual situation, but the end, when all accounts are settled, you will have worked all evil for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I just need to declare when I don't see it, and declare when I don't believe it, and declare when I don't feel it. God, you're good, and your good purposes are not stopped, but they are working out. And in the final equation, this will be good too. Sometimes you must declare what is true when you don't feel what is true. And this passage will help you do that. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He knows what he's doing and what he is doing is good. And his purposes are for his eternal glory. And his purposes are for your eternal good. And that is the lens that is true no matter what else happens. And then... So if that's true, he wants to now personalize that. He wants to take all the greatness that we've just wrapped up into who God is and personalize it to you. He doesn't faint or grow weary. And so what about you when you're out of strength? And you will be. What about you when there's nothing left in the tank? What about you when you're ready to quit? What about you when there is no ability to keep going? And in your human strength, you will get there. And sometimes it's the point that you get there. 
Because that will throw you back on top of God in dependence. But what about when that happens? What about when the last strand of hope and strength is frayed in your life and it's ready to fall and break? Let's read the text. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. I'll be done soon, don't worry. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. So I want you to think about this. Out of strength, he'll give strength. we got some strength and conditioning trainers around here. They're probably strength and conditioning as we speak. And they are tuning up athletes on the Georgia Southern campus to have maximum endurance, maximum strength, maximum ability to keep going and not stop. In this case, it would be warriors. They're training warriors that can go to battle and not stop. But even those guys get to an end. The greatest of young, fully fit human strength at some point will wear out. But those who wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord actively. Those who wait on the Lord in faith. Those who wait on the Lord being faithful in the dark. Look at the promise. Those people. Those who wait in the middle of their questions and in the middle of their pain will renew their strength and they will mount up on wings like eagles and they will run and not grow weary and they will walk and not grow faint. The unfathomable sovereign power of God will charge you with enough not to fix your circumstances always, but he will give you enough to be sustained through your circumstances. When you don't have anything left, the strength to endure. When you don't have anything left, the sustaining grace of God that will not let you fall. And so what is my job? I can't work out for this. What's my job? God, I am going to wait here with as much faith as you will give me. I'm going to wait here as faithfully in the dark pain that I'm experiencing as I can until you come and answer. Until you come and strengthen. And the promise is that he will come and give you the grace you need for whatever the fall brings into your life. Whatever the fall brings to your door, to your family's door, the promise is this, I will be enough to sustain you, to walk through it, even when you think you're at a place you can't. I've been to that place a handful of times in my life. A handful of times where it's like, I have an empty shell of a human being that just his heart's beating and his, his, his lungs are still breathing. But there is nothing else left. But I'm not still there. He was enough to get through it. If we were to go around this room, there would be stories of there's no, there was nothing left. There was no ability to believe. There was no ability to, to fight. There, was, there weren't even words that I could form out of my heart to pray. But he held. He sustained. He got me through. And that's the promise. Man, I would love the promise to be that it works out well. By the way, it does work out well in the end. Right? That's something we must fix in our heart and mind is there is ultimately deliverance. But what about when the deliverance doesn't come now? The promise is that if you will wait on the Lord, he will give you the strength to face whatever the fall brings. A few practical things as we close out. First, be thankful. 
If you read through the Psalms with us, one thing you'll find is one of the keys to victory spiritually is remembering the Lord. And one of the key elements of human failure is forgetting the Lord. And so I want to encourage you to remember, I I wrote a verse down from where I was reading. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. The key is to remember God. Let me remember what you have accomplished. Let me remember what you've done in your word. Let me remember what you've done for your people. Let me remember what you have done for me. I'm going to recount what you've done over and over to my soul. And if you want to be thankful, then remind your soul often of what he's done. In Sunday school this morning, we did Psalm 103. And it was like, soul, don't forget everything God's done. And it's 22 verses listed out of just, here's what he's done. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's done that's totally independent of my circumstances. Be thankful. Sometimes you have to fight for thankfulness because it doesn't come easy. And God gives you enough reasons, enough ammunition to fight for gratitude. Second, wait in active faithfulness on the Lord. In spite of your feelings, in spite of your circumstances, when everything around you seems to shout a different story. You remind yourself, you remind your soul, and you remind the people around you, here's what's true. And enlist people to help. Come remind me of who God is because I'm not seeing it right now. I'm not feeling it right now. And so you can wait in active faithfulness. You can declare what is true until you feel what is true in the midst of your circumstances. The third one, live in dependence on God, not independent of God. One of the beautiful things that God can do in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your pain is he can let the waves of your suffering crash you back onto the rock of Jesus. And it's painful. And there's no minimizing how much it hurts. But it crashes you right back into the arms of the one who scoops up his broken children and carries them close to his chest until they're ready to walk again. Let suffering crash you back on top of Jesus. Be profoundly grateful for our glorious God. That'll be a foundation that holds. And yes, remember to recount the things he's done, the things he's given you to increase our gratitude. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and myself that we'll remember. We'll remember who you are. We'll remember your greatness. We'll remember your care. We'll remember your wisdom that's beyond our wisdom. We'll remember that your grace will sustain. We'll remember, Father, the cross. Because we're so tempted to forget, we're so tempted to wander, and we're so tempted in our pain to feel like it's not true. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they suffer and as they rejoice that you'd be a foundation that's bigger and greater and better. We pray for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.